Well, it's a great blessing to be up here speaking well of the Lord. So the last time I was up here, we talked about the doctrine of adoption. And I think the doctrine of adoption lays a great foundation for us in understanding the type of love that God has for his children. Particularly, I wanted to emphasize how the love that he has is not based on merit in and of ourselves. It's not that we've achieved a certain thing that's made us worthy of his adoption, but rather the act of spiritual adoption emphasizes the great love, the tremendous attributes in God rather than our desirability, right? So where we left off last time I was up here is talking about what it means to be adopted into the family of God. What are some of the rights and responsibilities given to us as children of God? And so this morning, I want to follow that through and see what the Bible has to say about that, because the Bible, I believe, lays a blueprint for us as children of God. We all want to know what the will of God for us is, right? What, what does God want us to be doing? And so scripture talks about the will of God in two main ways. We have the secret will of God, which is effectively knowing the future. What, what is it that God is doing in circumstances and events to bring about the history of salvation throughout all time? That's a, that's a wonderful thing, but something we can't know until after we've seen it. In retrospect, we can look to see some of what God was doing, but until we're in eternity, we won't see all that God's doing. But in his word, he's given us another type of will of God, which is the revealed will of God. And this is his desire. This is what God has called us as his children to do and to be. And we want to be clear on what God has called us to be as his children. And thankfully, we've got some great passages of scripture we're going to be spending time in this morning. But to start, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to bless this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are present with us, Lord. We thank you that you have not left us to try and determine a path um, on our own, with our own intellect, with our own reason, or with our own feelings, Lord, but instead you've given us your word. You've spoken to us through the prophets and through your apostles, Lord, so that we might understand the heart that you have for us and what you have called us to do. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would bring conviction, that you'd bring um, challenging, but that you would also bring encouragement and the grace to follow in obedience with joy. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done and all that you're doing, and bless this time. Amen. To start with, let's turn over to Matthew 28. We're looking here at the Great Commission, and one of Jesus' first demonstrations of what he would like us to do as children of God in the new covenant. So where we pick up in Matthew 28, uh, Jesus has uh, risen from the dead. He's appeared to his apostles and to many, and he's done uh, a few a few speaking engagements already. But as we pick up here in verse 16, he is going to set forth some of his revealed will for his children. Um, And one of the things that we want to think about is the context here, right? So we think about what the assumption was with the Messiah in national Israel, which was that he was going to be a martial leader to bring them in victory over the Romans, right? To lead them in temporal victory. But instead, he came to crush the head of the serpent, their enemy, the devil. And so now he's about to give them a commission not to conquer in the way that they expect, but to conquer in the way that he calls them to. So starting in verse 16, says, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the first thing we might consider when we're looking at this passage is who it's directed towards. Of course, the words were spoken to the 11 apostles, and it might stand to reason that this is just given to them to go into all the nations and preach the gospel, which they did faithfully, right? But I think we get a clue to that in verse 20, which is his intention, where he says, in the context of this call, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That literally means to the completion of time. So we take this to mean a call to all God's children to follow in obedience until Jesus Christ determines that it has been completed. And so we, as part of this story of redemption, we take this to be something that applies to all of us. So the first element of the revealed will of God that we're seeing here for newly adopted children. Now, what does this look like? So we see the call is to make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So the first thing I want us to consider here is that the call that we have is not simply a call to drop a truth bomb and walk off or to get someone to pray a prayer or to get someone to make a confession. What we're talking about is walking with someone, is, is sharing life with them and encouraging them to know the Jesus that we serve. So the type of discipleship that we're talking about here is is something that engages and walks with individuals. And how are we to do that? It says to go, therefore, to make disciples, baptizing them. And then down below, we have teaching them. So baptism and teaching. So what is baptism? Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. It's a symbol. When you step out of the baptismal waters, what you're symbolizing is that the blood of Jesus Christ has washed your sins away and that a new creation is walking out. It's a declaration to everyone around that you are now part of the kingdom of heaven and that you're seeking to obey, right? So we have the declaration component and then we have the faithful teaching component. Where is it that we see faithful teaching week in and week out? Well, the context of the church. So I would submit to you that when we look at the Great Commission, we're not simply looking at evangelism and moving on. We're looking at establishing the church of God. So when we consider what we're doing overseas, this is why we don't do merely humanitarian aid. Well, it's a good thing to drill wells and provide food for the third world countries. Part of the commission that God's given his children, of which we all are, is to disciple so only that which is pursuing discipleship can we call fulfilling this, this, this commission, right? And the other side, we don't do short-term missions trips just for the sake of evangelism because that would leave children of God with no, no home, right? So instead, we seek to equip saints to establish the church of God overseas so that new adopted children of God can be welcomed into his church, trained, equipped, and step into fellowship. So that's part of what I want us to focus on today. Um, so what we have in today's society, which is, is, kind of a, this is kind of an obvious point, but Western Christianity does want to see our faith as a very private thing, something that's very, very, um, very in our own relationship with God, in our own hearts. It can be done uh, separately outside of the context of the church. But what we're going to see now and, and in, the, in the verses to come, even you know, as we think of COVID, for example, Ecclesia, which is what the New Testament uses as the word for church, is the gathering, the gathering of God's children, the gathering of the people of God. So I think what we can draw, the conclusions we can draw here are that the, the revealed will of God is that we would respond as his children to engage with the lost and to engage with the body of Christ, right? If we're expecting new children of God to be a part of the body of Christ, that's something that's for us as well. 
So you're interested in what this looks like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, because we have a beautiful example of what this looks like in Acts chapter 2. So as we pick up in Acts chapter 2, we have the Holy Spirit having come at Pentecost for God's children, or for the disciples, and we see great wonders being acted. We see people speaking other languages. We see tongues. We see uh, healing. We see tremendous things. And then we have Peter coming up and preaching. And he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and speaking of redemption history and its culmination and apex in Jesus Christ. And so uh, let's pick up in, uh, let's see, chapter 2, verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place throughout the apostles. And all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Peter's exhortation includes that they would repent and that they would be baptized. And then we see later on that they are to continue in teaching. And we see something else unique here. We see that they kept number of those who were being saved. So I think this helps us to understand what we think about the context of church. That it's not simply a place that you might go and generally be accepted or come in and out, that kind of thing. But instead that each member was known. They were identified in the body of Christ and they were present and everybody knew that they were a Christian, right? So we're beginning to get a little bit of a picture of what we're called to in the context of church, that becoming a Christian and becoming a member of a church, one of a number, is an important component. Um, and then what happened? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They shared meals together. They fellowshiped together. They prayed together. And they shared life together. They lived as a local expression of the body of Christ, or a church, right? So what do we take away? The revealed will of God is that followers of Christ would be about the business of the church. Uh, This is the normal way of things. Faithful preaching week in and week out, fellowship of the saints, is an important component as we see this. So as we consider sharing the gospel, we're not looking to win an argument or to make someone have a confession, but rather we are trying to show them patience and love like Jesus showed us so that we can welcome them into the fellowship that we have in the body of Christ. So we've established that missions and outreach lead to disciple-making in the context of church and that church should be a part part of the body of Christ, a part of of each individual member who's adopted into the family of God. But I think there's more to it than just being present in the church, more to it than just having these components. There's another component that's important for us. And to look at this, I'd like us to go to Nehemiah chapter 9. So we're going to be digging through the Old Testament here. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. 
All right, Nehemiah chapter 9. So where we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes after the Babylonian exile. So the children of Israel are spread abroad, the wall of Jerusalem has been destroyed, and the nation is, is not as it once was. And so uh, Nehemiah receives a communication, he receives an update about his people and about the status of the wall, and he is deeply grieved at the state of his people. And so the king, who evidently he had a real great relationship with, asks if he can help. So the king, you know, gives him an opportunity to ask for something. And so Nehemiah says, I'd like to restore the wall uh, of Jerusalem. And so the king writes him a blank check to do basically what he needs to do to make that happen. So, of course, there's various challenges, but Nehemiah is able to unite the people to build the wall. And after the wall is completed, the Lord puts it on his heart to gather everyone together. And they start by looking at their genealogies, looking at the faithfulness of God from generation to generation to generation, and then they read the book of the law. And as they read the book of the law, they have the Levites go among the people to share the spirit of what's being said, to help them to understand what's being said. And the Lord works. They begin to see their faithlessness, and they see the faithfulness of God demonstrated over and over again. And they're astounded by the covenant keeping of love love of God, and they remember his faithfulness. So read, let's read in 9.36, I think is where we're starting. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 36, Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is, for the, is the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies, and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. And then jumping over to chapter 10, uh, we're going to start in verse 28 here. We see all the names of the leaders and the priests, and then in chapter 20, in verse 28 it says, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives and their sons and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen and the nobles and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. So we see the children of Israel here in Nehemiah um, talking about the law that God has given them as they now have, a, have an understanding of it. Now, the law is observed between an individual and God. So why didn't they go home and in the privacy of their homes make a commitment to God? They could have done that. But instead, they came together and took upon themselves as a curse, not as an individual, but corporately. Corporately, they came together to commit to follow Christ. And I think that this is the framework by which we look at the New Testament and the commands we're going to look at in a minute here, that unless we have this type of commitment in membership in the body of Christ, it doesn't make sense for us to follow through with these other commands. So what, what I'm suggesting is that as the body of Christ, as we are baptized, as we participate in communion week in and week out, the commitment that we make to God is a commitment not only to God, but it's a commitment together that we would hold each other in mutual accountability to the commitment to Christ that we all have made to be holy as God is holy. And so that acts as an invitation for all kinds of things that we're going to look at. So the children of Israel made that covenant to the Lord to take upon a curse if they did not obey. 
So again, when we take communion each week, that's one of the important things that we have talked about in wanting to take communion each week is wanting to revisit and recommit to the Lord and to each other to see the the family of God together committing to Christ is a wonderful thing. So when we make that commitment, we say, I belong to the kingdom of God. I want to commit my life in obedience to Christ. And as fellow members of the church, I expect you to help me when I'm weak. And I expect to take on the right and responsibility of a child of God to help you as a fellow member and fellow committed to holiness pursuing Christ. And this is where the rubber meets the road. When you're weak, is it comfortable for a brother or sister to come and challenge you or to ask you questions that feel maybe a little bit convicting? Is that comfortable? It's really not usually comfortable. And are you comfortable to talk with a brother or sister in Christ about something that Maybe they're struggling with. Maybe they're not aware. Are you comfortable to do that without an invitation? Well, my commitment to you is that we have all the invitation we need in the covenant that we've made with God and the commitment we've made in the body of Christ. And this is where real love for the brethren is demonstrated. It takes the Holy Spirit's grace to overlook sin and it takes the Holy Spirit's grace to potentially address sin in a brother or sister. But the question becomes, do you love me enough to have a conversation with me where you suggest that you see something in me that maybe I don't see in myself? Are you ready to risk the comfortable relationship that we have for the sake of my spiritual well-being and the good of my eternal soul? Is this really what God's asking us to do? Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 6. This is one of the quintessential verses that we look for in terms of biblical counseling, and it is a powerful verse that sets the stage for us here. So Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Who is this passage addressing? Is it addressing the elders, the deacons, the leaders of the church? No, it's addressing the congregation, the members of the church, the brothers of the church, right? So this responsibility to restore is given to the entire congregation. It's not given to certain individuals. Why? Because we've all made that commitment to Christ together. That opens the door for this type of restoration to occur. Now, what what, what type of brokenness is it talking about? It's saying... Uh, who is anyone who's caught in any trespass? The word here is actually um, overtaken or or um, taken by surprise. So we're talking about a believer, someone who is a child of God who is struggling with a sin. Um, what should our attitude be towards them? Should we correct them with a sense of justice for the sake of God's honor, or should we condemn them because their lack of faithfulness? No, rather, the word says we are to restore them with gentleness. We are to have compassion on the brothers and sisters who are struggling. And the word for restoration here refers to the setting of a broken bone. This individual is hurting, and they may be hurting others. And we are to restore them. We are to seek that wholeness be made. So the, the command here is not to distance yourself when it gets uncomfortable or when it's painful or hard in those relationships, but to move towards them, to move towards the pain and the hurt. And then it, we ask ourselves, 
anyone is, yes, you who are spiritual is the one who's to do the restoration. So show of hands, who's spiritual, right? Who, who wants to volunteer for that to say, oh, that's me. That refers to me. Thank goodness I finally can categorize myself. No, um, this is where I think th- this is such a refreshing passage. So we look at chapter 5 in Galatians. Paul has just finished saying that the one who is spiritual is putting to death the deeds of the flesh, right? And then he goes on to say, what, does, what is the fruit of the Spirit? What do we expect to see in the individual who is spiritual? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We've got all that, right? You know, the good news is, the refreshing news here is that none of that's from you. All of that is from God. Your qualification to restore a brother or sister in Christ doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God at work in you. So the qualification doesn't come from us. Quite the contrary. If we look at Matthew 7, the demonstration that we have of of correcting a brother, we're to get the log out of our own eye. So not only are we not quite qualified, we struggle in the exact same way, and we are called to identify how we struggle first. We are to see the sin in ourselves. We're to see how we are this other person. Not only do we struggle in a similar way, but if I'm truly to examine my heart, I see that we, I struggle in a greater way. I don't even know the extent of your struggle, but I know the extent of my struggle, right? So the first thing we're to do is to, from a position of humility, acknowledge that we are the ones who need the grace. And then we're to, out of compassion on our brother or sister, pursue restoration for them, right? So a healthy, healthy, healthy helping of humility, I knew that would be impossible to say, is needed. Um, so the rule of thumb is if you feel ready to correct someone, then you probably should sit down until you feel like you're the one who needs to be corrected, right? Why is it so hard for us to correct or challenge a brother or sister, though? I think part of the reason is that it calls into question our own faithfulness, because we dare not say that we're perfect, right? But Paul writes to Timothy referring to himself as the chief of sinners. How could the chief of sinners be of any good to another brother or sister in Christ? But that's the type of humility we are to pursue in seeing who we truly are. And we are given the expectation, despite ourselves being sinners, to step forward in this kind of love. We acknowledge our weakness and failings and with humility lean on Christ. As Paul records in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So we don't confront a brother or sister in sin from a position of superiority, but from a position of humility as a fallen sinner as well who is in need of grace just the same. Why do we do this? Because the Bible tells us so. Because the Holy Spirit has promised to meet us and equip us to do what he has called us to do. And because we really hope they do that to us. We really hope they love us enough to do that, right? But particularly, I'd like to draw our attention back to the first word, which is brethren. This is given to all of the children of God in a congregation. We are called to be involved in each other's lives, even when it's painful. And the process of restoring a brother or sister is probably not something we would choose to do if we could avoid it. It will be much easier to judge them from a distance or to simply say that that's their problem that they're to deal with. But this is the kind of love that Jesus showed you while you were yet in sin when he died, right? This is the kind of love that leads you to lay in bed at night with a knot in your stomach wondering how you're going to start this conversation. The kind of love that you go throughout your day praying for mercy to know how to even speak these words to that person. 
But that is the love that that we are called to. And that's the kind of love that Jesus will equip us with because it's the love that he's shown us. And this is the same type of principle that we think of when we consider church discipline, right? Church discipline is a demonstration of the holiness of God. And that doesn't sound very comforting, does it? That sounds real intimidating. But instead of what we might consider the iron fist of church discipline, the process in scripture includes chance after chance after chance for restoration of his children. Why do we do this? The heart of God is demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 5.5 5, where he says, so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, so that they may be whole, restored. That's the type of love that we are to, Im- to embody as we walk through things like church discipline. The heart of God is to bear, bear burdens, to have gentleness, and to restore individuals. But it, the, the task of church discipline is, is undertaken by an individual who loves a brother or sister in Christ too much to let them throw away their eternal soul for trifles in this age. That is the call of God and the type of love that we are to have. As Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. A right understanding of church discipline is an incredible means of grace and a comfort to us as children of the Most High God, that he has given us a means to restore, a means of helping, right? It's a, it's a guardrail. It's a protection for God's children and something that we should embrace. And as we make that commitment to each other and to God, we are to welcome that guardrail because we know that when we are weak, which we are often, we need those types of accountability forms. And the comfort that God has given us in Matthew 18, 20 says, where, there are, where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. We see that used all over the place, but the context is church discipline. The heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching, painful situations that God calls us to enter into out of a heart of love, God has promised a special grace for those individuals. God will be with them, will provide for them in unique ways because he's called us to do this and he won't fail to give us what we need through it. Does this mean that we expect, as the body of Christ, to do these things perfectly, whether it's restoration, whether it's church discipline? Absolutely not. We will step on toes. People will take offense and we'll do it incorrectly because we are broken individuals. But because this is given to us by God, he has not left us alone. If we were given church discipline and restoration like this, as a function from man to be carried out by men alone, then we are in trouble. But he has promised to walk with us through this thing. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We know the heart of God, and he has withheld no good thing. Church discipline and restoration is a good thing that we are to be thankful for. So as we consider the big picture of life in the body, let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Jumping over to Ephesians chapter 4, the very next book. All right. We want to take a little bit of time to look further at what's expected specifically of the body of Christ. So I'm going to read for us, starting in verse 11. 
It says in verse 11, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's so much there, but the very first thing I want us to look at is the, the, the verse 11, where we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers given. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And the word here for the building up of the church is actually the word for construct a building, right? So I worked in construction for, for a time, and so I got a, a chance to see a lot of different job sites, right? So you have the job site superintendent or the, um, the foreman walking around, and he's got a set of blueprints. And he's, he's evaluating the work that's going on over against the blueprints, which is the source of authority, right? The blueprints are demonstrating what is to be in this construction site, right? But the carpenters and the pipe fitters and the flooring guys... And the iron workers are the ones who are carrying out the work, right? They've got their own set of blueprints that they're studying. They want to know the blueprints well. But the, the superintendent is there to look at the oversight of the entire process to make sure everybody has the same vision and everyone is pursuing the same goals. And similarly in the church, that's what we are called to do as elders, which is to set the vision for pursuit of Christ and to equip the members to do their jobs. And part of their jobs are the things that we're looking at now, which is to build up the body of Christ. Building up of the body of Christ is, I'm going to talk about it later here, but it's as Piper refers to it as, is exercising our faith to, to strengthen and build up and establish the faith of brothers and sisters in Christ. So we see that our giftings are given specifically to be used in the context of the church. But are we bold to use our giftings? Are we bold to step in? Um, are we carpenters who are afraid to drill holes? I know that I was. So for the first six months of my construction time, I managed to work in a bin outside dealing with hardware deliveries and spreadsheets, managing thousands of pieces of hardware, ultimately because I was terrified to go into this Kaiser Hospital, where there were million-dollar contracts to start drilling and stuff and breaking stuff. I was terrified. So what I ended up doing is finding ways that I could use my other giftings so that I didn't have to do what I was hired to do, right? So I spent six months out here managing deliveries and learned to drive a forklift. What I was taught to use my tools and trained outside of the job site to do that, but I never did it, right? I was terrified. But when I finally was pushed and was given opportunities to step in and trained and equipped and using my giftings in construction, I found a satisfaction that I never would have expected. It was terrifying because I was afraid to do it wrong. But as I participated with this team in using my tools, putting on my tool belts and getting into it, the Lord blessed me abundantly. Similarly, in the body of Christ, uh, when I was nominated for eldership, Earl asked me shortly after if I wanted to teach some Sunday. 
and I was flabbergasted. One doesn't go from not teaching on Sunday to teaching on Sunday. That's a terrifying thing. Are you kidding me? But that's an incorrect understanding of how the Lord works through the body of Christ. The the Lord equips the saints for the service of ministry, and we are to look for opportunities to use the giftings that he's given us that we may or may not even be aware of. But it should be a normal thing in the body of Christ to welcome others into opportunities to exercise their giftings. Why? So that the whole church may be built up so that every joint would be equipped with the Holy Spirit of God to support the other joints. That's the picture that we have in Ephesians 4. So being engaged in the ministry is something that we are all called to do, but it can be scary to do that job. Um, I lived in the bin for quite a while. But Romans 8.28 says, But the Lord has promised to work all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. His purpose for us as the body of Christ is to support one another and to be engaged, to go towards the hurt and the discomfort and the pain of relationships and to be used, not of ourselves, but of the Holy Spirit who works through us. This promise was given to all those who have a job to do. And this verse the verses we've been reading indicate all the jobs that each of us are called to do. do. So uh, pull on your tool belts because we're all on the clock here. Let's take a look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think I read this every time I'm up here because it's such an awesome verse, and I will probably keep reading it, so we'll all memorize it soon. Um, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. So again, who is this exhortation given to? We request of you, brethren. This is given to the whole congregation. You don't even have to be spiritual to do this. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) We read all of Scripture together, and we take this similarly to the other passage we looked at as the qualification for other children of God looking to Jesus Christ for strength. So... We, another element, which I know I've brought out before, is that you know, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. We have to know who's unruly, who's faint-hearted, and who's weak. And we can't know that unless we're involved in their lives. We can't know how to respond to believers who are hurting if we don't know what's going on. It's not a one-size-fits-all. We are called to the type of discipleship that we saw in the Great Commission that walks with others in the body of Christ, closely sharing life together. So it's important that we take that into consideration. Let's quickly jump over to Romans uh, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we're going to be starting in verse 3. All right, Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of your faith, if service in his servant serving, 
or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with faith, with cheerfulness. So again, we see some of the more practical giftings broken down here. We have serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and mercy. I think that God has given all of us all of these to differing degrees, and we are to exercise all of them in the body of Christ. Again, that's a command to exercise them accordingly. Each of us is to do that. So when we do see a brother or sister stepping in and exercising it, we are to call that out because it's the Holy Spirit working through them. When we see an individual blessing or striving to bless another, we are to call those things out to draw attention to God's work. It's to reflect God, to reflect his grace and his mercy in each of us. Um, as Matthew Henry says about, the, about Romans 12, he says, we must not say, I am nothing, therefore I will sit still and do nothing. But I'm nothing in myself, And therefore, I will lay out myself to the utmost in the strength of the grace of Christ. Whatever our gifts or situations may be, let us try to employ ourselves humbly, diligently, cheerfully, and in simplicity, not seeking our own credit or profit, but the good of many for this world and that which is to come. So we don't consider our giftings from a position of pride, neither do we consider them from a position of self-deprecating false humility. But true humility is believing what God says is true of us. And God has given us this call and he's given us the equipping. So no matter how grand or how lowly your station may be or your service may be, the Lord has given it to you and he will equip you to do it. And we will find joy in it as we seek to reflect the glory to him, the giver of these gifts. As Paul said, his power is manifested in our weakness. So as we minister with humility, we provide a platform to demonstrate God's attributes. Um, What I particularly want us to emphasize here, what I want us to fight at Coast, is complacency and fear. Complacency and unwillingness to get into the messiness of ministry through meaningful relationships and fear to use our giftings in the context of church. It's natural for us to have those feelings, particularly fear, because we know who we are, we know how we fail, but we are not alone. We are new creation. We've walked out of those baptismal waters, trusting in Jesus Christ, demonstrating that his blood has washed us clean, and we have a new spirit within us. For the sake of glorifying God and loving your brothers and sisters, just like we saw in Matthew eighteen twenty. He is promised to be present as we walk forth in those difficult situations. So what this breaks down to is that it's a matter of trusting and obeying ultimately. Do we trust that God will give us what we need as we seek to obey? Will we look to his scriptures to inform us, to know what's true about us as adopted into the family of God, what he's called us to, and we step forward into the unknown trusting that he will be all that we need. He's trust, he asks us to step into the unknown of those relationships, trusting that he will give us what we need. We can't see the other side of it. We don't see the secret will of God, but we do know his heart for us in giving us these calls. Teaching is a scary thing for me, um, but I've felt a deep joy in study and preparation and in presentation. I don't know, know if I should keep doing this, but the Lord blesses me each time. And similarly, I think he I think that we all 
being vessels of God, will find a unique sense of joy and satisfaction as we step into ministry. So my encouragement for you is not to see ministry as standing up here alone, but whatever method of service you have, take the mechanical element out of it and look to see how you can serve the the God of, of heaven who adopted you in that thing. Whether it's running the slides God gave you the fingers to press that button. Praise him for that and praise him that we can all be on the same page as we worship him in song. If God gave you giftings to run the soundboard and you're learning that process, praise the Lord. That's a tremendous opportunity for you to use what God has given you to apprehend what's needed to do the job and to allow the service to go forward. It's not about everything being perfect. It's about obeying God and bringing glory to him as we do and finding opportunities to build the faith of the brothers and sisters around you. Look for those opportunities. Leading worship, whatever it is, you have an opportunity to make something that may be a mechanical process for many, may turn into a mechanical process, and remind them of the eternal value and the investment that they are able to do as a vessel for God in that moment to serve the Lord. So whether it's leading the call to worship, whether it's running the sound booth, updating the website, whether you have an opportunity to do a brief teaching at at maybe a woman's breakfast or a men's thing, whether it's discipling another younger brother or sister in Christ. Some of these things might seem mechanical, might seem like things that you just do each week, you know, but, but as we can step out of that and be reminded that we have an opportunity to turn it into an act of worship as we glorify God with the giftings that he has provided us and given us to walk out in the body of Christ and praise him as we do those things. By the power of the Holy Spirit, step out into those tasks. He seek to see the opportunities to strengthen the faith of the individuals that are around you, and you will find fresh grace and mercy as you step into this type of ministry. We can turn each of these tasks into an act of worship the Lord has decided to work through each of these things to bring joy and satisfaction. So don't be afraid of participation in the body of Christ, but welcome it. That's my encouragement to you. So where are we after all these things? We've clarified that evangelism and ministry is given to all the children of God. The call to repentance, baptism, and membership in an ongoing relationship with Christ is the the model that we're to follow. We're to commit to follow Christ. We're to make an outward expression and we're to be committed to the the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters, just as we are committed to our our own spiritual well-being in Christ. So formal membership is a biblical thing. Believers covenanting together for mutual accountability in the pursuit of Christ is a normal thing. Committing to the good of our brothers and sisters means engaging with them even when and especially when it's hard and it hurts and it's difficult. So we, when we see that, are to put on a heart of humility when our brother or sister reaches out to us. And we should recognize, hoping all things, that they're seeking to love us profoundly. And praise the Lord that you have a brother or sister seeking to love you like that. Um, Having been adopted into the family of God, we share in the family business. So we're to be good stewards of the gifts that God has provided. So we're to be using and growing our giftings in the body And that's a blessing from God that we can participate in and we should practice seeing those things in ourselves and others and reflecting the glory to God. 
So this includes involvement in and development of the body. So that's the type of ministry we're to look for, developing the body in whatever ways we can. And this is why we have our sharing time each Sunday, and that's why it's so important. We have opportunities to share what God's doing in our hearts and our lives, to ask for prayer, but to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. This is why we have... uh, fellowship time after church so you can get to know the believers around you so that you can know if they're maybe maybe they're unruly no maybe they're weak maybe they need help how do you need to minister to these people you can't do that if you're not present if you're not here in the times that god has given us as a body of christ to be together then you can't fulfill this mission that's why we have small groups small groups are an opportunity for us to be invested together in a very personal way so that we might know and bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in christ we can't exercise our giftings we can't have giftings exercised towards us if we don't look for opportunities to be engaged with other brothers and sisters those are things that god has given us and that we see in acts chapter 2 that are right for the body of christ to be engaged in There are seasons where we can't, of course, but we are to, as much as possible, seek opportunities to use the giftings that God has given us because we are joints in the body of Christ. We can't pretend that we're not part of this thing. We are if we are followers of Christ, and we are to use that the function that God's given us, even if we're just a big toe. There's a lot of balance that comes from the big toe. It's it's important. Uh, This is why participation in... Prayer meetings is so important so that we can come before the Lord together, seeking him together, acknowledging our neediness. And this is why worship nights are so important, that we might strengthen the faith of the brethren. So my encouragement to each of us today is that we lean into God's blueprint for yourself as a child of God and engage in the lives of the brothers and sisters in Christ around you. So let's let Paul do our closing here in a better way than I ever could in Philippians chapter 2. So turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2 as I just caused devastation. Um, <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2 in verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be a part of the body of Christ. Thank you that you have a vision for us, that we might exercise the giftings that you have provided for the building, for the establishing of the church of God. Thank you that you have given us this commission, Lord. I pray that you would help us to understand that and to take it to heart, Lord, that it wouldn't be simply information that lives in our heads, but that that we would act it out out of love for the congregation, for the brethren, Lord. Give us boldness, give us courage to be the brothers and sisters that we want to have in this body who would come and support us, equip us, challenge us, convict us if we need it, Lord. Help us to have the humility that we need to receive that. Help us to have the humility we need to give that and help us to be ready. Help us to commit to the well-being of our brothers and sisters. And thank you, Jesus, that you have committed to us first. Thank you that it is because we see your love, that we can even understand what you're asking us to do. So Lord, I pray that these things would sink deep into our hearts and that we would walk them out for your glory and for our good. Thank you for this time, Lord. We look to you for life. Amen.